Greetings to listeners all around the world. Welcome to Safe Dividend Investing's podcast number 141 on November 9th of 2023. My name is Ian Duncan MacDonald. In today's podcast, I'll be answering four interesting investment questions. The objective of my books, my website, and my podcasts are to show all those seeking financial independence how to become informed, confident, successful, self-directed investors. Question number one. Why is the stock market and investing so confusing? Investing in stocks is as simple or confusing as you make it. If your objective is to realize a predictable income from your stock investments that you can live off for the rest of your life, that is a simple objective. The way this predictable income can be realized is to only invest in financially strong companies paying high dividends. Stocks that you will never sell. Once you buy them, you ignore their share prices. All you care about is that you receive your monthly or quarterly dividend payments. You do not have to be a genius to find stocks who have been paying ever-increasing dividend payments over the last 24 years. Information on dividend payments is available free of charge from many sources. If you are going to live off your dividend income, you must recognize that you will be limited to a dividend yield income between 5% to 9% of a stock's share price. Thus, if you want an income of $100,000 a year, you're going to have to have about a million and a half dollars invested. The interesting thing about dividend payments is that the amounts paid out are conscious decisions made by the executives of the company. The executives are humans. They are often motivated by pride and seeking the approval of their peers and of their shareholders. Thus, if they've been steadily increasing dividend payments for the last 10 years or more, year after year, right through the market crashes of 2008 and 2020, even when their share prices dipped significantly, it is logical to believe that they will increase their dividend payouts this year as well. Since dividends are being paid out of profits, and profits are the result of the executive's revenue and expense decisions, they will manipulate revenue and expenses to arrive at a profit large enough to pay the dividend. If they have had a bad sales year, then they will lay off employees and cut expenses to make the profit objective. This is very different from how share prices are derived. The stock market is an auction vehicle 
handling millions of transactions every day, hundreds of thousands of speculators intent on getting rich by buying stocks at one price and selling them at another price are placing bids to buy or sell stocks. For a stock to be bought by an optimistic speculator who thinks the share price is going to increase, that speculator has to find a pessimistic speculator who will accept the bid because he thinks the shares will go down. The sale of the stock is then made. Unlike dividends, where conscious decisions are made by human beings as to what the dividend payout will be, there is no consensus or agreed-to decision as to what the share price will be. Hundreds of different influences can motivate the speculators to move the share price up or down in a seemingly mindless way. It is in constant flux. To get a reliable dividend income, you must buy shares of companies who are financially strong. Determining if a company is financially strong has little to do with their share price. It has to do with the company's profitability. The purpose of a company is to make a profit. Realizing a consistent profit year after year requires skill and experience. Profitability gets reflected in the company's operating margin percentage, in its book value compared to its share price, in its share price to earnings ratio, in the volume of shares being traded, in its history of rising share prices, and so on. To help me identify such companies, I built a scoring system that I explain in detail in my books. In building a generous stock portfolio, it comes down to the simple task of choosing those stocks with the highest score that pay the highest dividend, plus with a history of rising share prices and rising dividend payouts. You don't need to be a financial genius to sort stocks from best to worst. Where judgment comes into it is realizing the companies with the best or highest scores do not pay the highest dividend yields. Stocks with lower scores, but still strong, will pay higher dividend yields. To realize a consistent dividend revenue stream, you need a mixture of stocks that will give you a consistent average dividend income, probably in the range of 6 to 7% of your portfolio's total value. To improve the consistency, you would want to invest equally in 20 to 30 strong stocks, since strange disasters could occur in one or two of these stocks you want this disaster to have negligible impact on the total portfolio. There is safety in numbers of stocks. I've been investing this way for 20 years. My dividend income has grown consistently because strong stocks 
do grow over time, and the executives of companies wanted to keep their dividend yield percentages at least as good or better than previous years will increase their dividend payouts. At times, over these 20 years, the value of my portfolio has been almost five times greater than its value when I started. During market crashes and recessions, it might temporarily shrink back to being three times greater. Since I have no intention of selling these strong stocks, its value is of passing interest only. If I were to sell one of these strong stocks, I would then have to search for one equally as strong, paying as good a dividend yield percentage. There are not that many good stocks out there. To make this kind of investing even simpler, my two latest books, New York Stock Exchange's 106 Best High Dividend Stocks and Canadian High Dividend Investing, 215 Scored Stocks, provide an investor with a page for each stock that details their strength and shows their share prices and dividend payouts going back to 1999. The data is sorted by score, share price, and dividend yield percent so that you can easily find the 20 strong stocks for your unique portfolio. Question number two. If you had $10 million, what would be the easiest way for you to double those funds? It is not difficult to double $10 million over time. A financially strong portfolio of 20 stocks paying an average dividend yield of 6% will double within six years if you constantly reinvest the dividend income back into the portfolio. Even without the dividends being reinvested into the portfolio, a portfolio of such stocks will grow on average about 12% or more a year. Each year that goes by, the increased dividend investment are accelerating the growth. It is a compounding effect. You would be initially investing $500,000 into each of the 20 strong stocks. This investment strategy would only work if you were self-directed investing because as soon as you involve investment advisors, you can expect somewhere between 1% and 3% of your portfolio to be drained every year because of the involvement of these parties. As well, if investment advisors are involved, you will lose control of your portfolio and not understand the strength of each stock. Downturns occur every four or five years. You might be tempted in a recession to abandon your strong stocks just because their share prices are down. Even though they are as strong 
as ever. The interesting thing is why someone thinks it is important to double the $10 million to $20 million. Is it going to make your life any better? What is the point? If you're focused on growing your wealth instead of living a full, interesting life. $10 million and give you a reliable $600,000 dividend income year after year. If you need more than that and start liquidating your portfolio, then your reliable dividend income will start to shrink. You can't have your money and spend it too. Question number three. How can you tell if an advisor is trustworthy and reliable? One way you could tell if an advisor is trustworthy and reliable is to ask to see their monthly investment statements for the last 10 years to see what he or she is invested in and how successful they have been. Now you can separate the sales BS from reality. Do not be too surprised if they have less invested than you are prepared to invest with them and that their portfolio has not grown. This is where you start questioning them as to why they chose to invest and what they are invested in. If they are smart and they refuse to show you their monthly investment statements, they will make excuses about it being confidential. This excuse does not fly because you are about to hand your money over to them and they will know exactly what you are invested in. It also limits what they can sell you. Many investment advisors are expected to sell what the company who employs them wants them to sell to you. If where they propose to put your money into investments that they themselves do not own, then this should be confirmation that you're just a source of income to them and you need to question every proposal that they make. For example, ask them to detail exactly what they are going to earn by taking you on as a client. They will propose an annual small percentage, somewhere between 1% and 3% of the value of your portfolio. However, if they put you into foreign stocks, you can expect to see charges every month for doing currency conversions. You can also find many other fees that appear and some that you are never aware of. Investment advisors push mutual funds because their company and the mutual fund company can both take money out of the funds which are most likely never appear on your monthly investment statement. They can do all sorts of things with your money once they have it. You give them this permission when you agree for them to buy a mutual fund. 
typically you would have only a vague idea of what the mutual fund was invested in. Do not be fooled by their sales pitch that mutual funds are safe because the risk is spread over hundreds of stocks. Mutual funds can lose money. The diversity of the portfolio can be a weakness, not a strength. There are fewer than 100 companies that I would consider strong enough to invest in. The problem with investment advisors is that they think like investment advisors. And they think everyone thinks like they do. Why invest simply when you can invest in some complex strategy that your client will not understand? They expect you to give them unconditional control over your money? With perhaps 150 to 200 clients, they are busy putting out fires in their customer base. Every year, they lose perhaps 20% of their customers. This loss then requires them to spend perhaps half their time prospecting for new clients. Being able to convert 1 in 10 prospects into a client is probably a better ratio than what they can achieve. This translates into approaching hundreds of new people every year. If you thought you were going to get their undivided attention whenever you wanted it, you will be disappointed. If you have a million dollars to invest, you can expect at least 2% of your portfolio to go into the financial advisor's pocket every year. That is $20,000 for doing what exactly? How much time does it require to establish a portfolio? That's $20,000 is going to be paid to them every year whether that portfolio makes money or not. What will you do when every year the portfolio shrinks? Are you going to look for another advisor? Or are you going to realize that you can manage your own portfolio in a simple, logical way and save yourself $20,000 a year or $200,000 over 10 years? All you have to be shown is how to manage your own stocks. My books show you how to do that. Go to my website, www.informus.ca, for more information. Question number four. What are the largest stock holdings in Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio? Berkshire Hathaway Incorporated, stock symbol BRK.A, is traded on the New York Stock Exchange. Earlier in 2023, I studied this holding company's stock portfolio. There is no big secret as to what shares are held in it. Berkshire Hathaway is required to make it public periodically through filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission. 
The following figures are from December 31st, 2022 filing. Interestingly, 11 companies accounted for 88% of the portfolio. Another 41 companies whose shares each made up less than 1% of the total portfolio altogether made up the remaining 12%. Some of these smaller holdings, which make up less than 1%, can include a Japanese conglomerate like Itochu Corporation, in which Berkshire has invested $3 billion. Itochu is not traded on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. They have operations in many countries around the world. Berkshire's smallest holding was United Parcel Service, where only $10,837,000 was invested. The 11 major investments led off with Apple Incorporated, where $135 billion worth of stock was held. Bank of America Corporation was second, with holdings of $35 billion. In third place was Chevron Corporation with $27 billion, followed by American Express with $26 billion, then Coca-Cola with $24 billion. Kraft Heinz Company came next with $13 billion. Occidental Petroleum Corporation with $11 billion. Moody's Corporation with $7 billion. Activision Blizzard Incorporated with $4 billion. BYD Company Limited with $4 billion. The 11th largest position was HP Incorporated with $4 billion. While Warren Buffett is known for carefully choosing stocks with the intention of never selling them, it is interesting that major holdings once held in companies like Wells Fargo, U.S. Bank Corp., J.P. Morgan, and Delta Airlines are all now gone. Buffett was reported to have said that one stock he regrets never buying was Amazon, A-M-Z-N, on the New York Stock Exchange. When it was first listed in 97, shares could have been bought for $0.07 cents a share. After a few share splits, it is now worth $143 a share. Someone worked it out if they'd invested $10,000 in 1997, it would now be worth $44 million. This presumes they would have held on to it for all those years, which is unlikely. Buffett said he just cannot imagine 20 years ago that a bookseller could evolve into the colossus it is today. The vice chairman of Berkshire, Charlie Munger, has also expressed his opinion on investments. On cryptocurrency, he is quoted as saying, it's asinine, it's massively stupid, and of course it's very dangerous, and the government were totally wrong to permit it. I'm not proud of my country for allowing this. It's worthless, it's no good, 
It's crazy. It'll do nothing but harm, and it's antisocial to allow it. I doubt if we will see any crypto shares at Berkshire Hathaway. Would I regard Berkshire Hathaway as a good investment? It has always been pricey. In 1988, when it was listed, it was at $4,900 a share. Now, it is at $524,125 a share. There is no argument that shareholders have seen an incredible gain in value. Its weakness might be seen in its modest 11.64 operating margin and the difficulty you might have selling your shares. Few investors have hundreds of thousands of dollars to invest in a single stock whose share price in the last 12 months has been as high as $566,000 and as low as $434,000. Out of curiosity, I ran it through the IDM stock scoring software. It scored a 53. The highest score I have ever calculated was a 78. The lowest was an 8. I avoid stocks scoring under 50. You will not see me liquidating my portfolio to buy a few shares at Berkshire Hathaway. Thanks for listening. If you wish more information on investing and stock scoring, please visit my website www.saferbetterdividendinvesting.com. Thank you.